0: My guests today take us deep into the complex world of fungi, trees, and the story we all might be getting wrong about their relationships. For a while now, there has been this narrative out there about trees communicating with each other through fungi. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a cool concept. Trees using the vast network of underground mycelium to not only communicate, but share and transfer resources and warn each other of dangers like bark beetle and wildfire. It paints a visual of individual trees connected in a vast, sprawling network of entangled intelligence, altruism, and shared wisdom. Kind of gives you this warm and fuzzy feeling. This concept is largely known as the Wood Wide Web, and if you'd asked me about it a few months ago, I would have been eager to tell this tale myself. Look anywhere and you'll see article after article, after podcast, after book, after popular culture reference of its existence as settled science. But what if I told you that this theory is far from having any semblance of scientific consensus? And not only that, but the evidence we do have for it might be a simplification of what's actually going on. On today's episode of the Earth to Humans podcast, the rise and decay of the wood wide web. Justine Karst, uh, mycologist at the University of Alberta, and Dr. Jason Hoxima, professor of biology at the University of Mississippi. Um, thank you guys for coming on to the show today. Um, I've been really excited to talk to you. I know we've been kind of corresponding back and forth for the last few weeks, but um, I just wanted to kind of start with like a brief introduction about, about you guys. Um, maybe Justine, you start, but how did you get interested and involved in nature and uh, specifically fungi and your interest in the natural world.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so thanks for, thanks for the invite to be on the show. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Okay. So to answer your question, how did I get into nature and fungi? So, um, probably like many people, um, my love and interest for nature started as a kid and I grew up um, spending most of my time outdoors kind of in a remote setting too and so with my family if you didn't want to be stuck inside doing chores then the choice was to go outside and play and Mm -hmm. so for me that was usually the option I would always take because I'd rather be outside playing than like yeah be doing anything inside and so just like a lot of time being outside and just wondering how things are put together, why things work the way they do. Um, so that was definitely as a kid and spending a lot of time in the in a forest. And then I guess as I got older, um, my curiosity about mycorrhizal fungi, that didn't start till much later, I think as like probably an undergrad. And it was in a course where Um, My instructor at the time, Heather Addy, she gave us a lecture on mycorrhizal fungi and it was based on this paper, this 1997 paper um, by Samard et al. showing carbon, below ground carbon transfer and possibly through mycorrhizal fungi. And I was just blown away by this paper. I thought it was such a neat study. I thought, I was really inspired. It was done by a lot of Canadian scientists, Um, you know, these are forests in Canada. And so, shortly after that, I reached out to uh, who would be my PhD supervisor, Melanie Jones, who is also a co-author on on the work we'll talk about today. And from there, I guess, yeah, I just didn't really look back. Um, yeah, it just it it just has always kept my interest, the world of mycorrhizal fungi and how they fit into
0: forests. Awesome. I, we'll come back to that because I want I want to ask you a question about that specifically, like that paper. Yeah, if You're yeah, interested in it. But um, Jason, you want to go ahead and give us your little introduction to also, do you guys, how do you guys say, is it, you, I, I know, Justine, you say fungi. Jason, do you yeah. say fungi or fungi? <laughs> hmm.
2: I say fungi also, but I, I tell students and other people that they can say it however they want, because mm-hmm. you can find someone in any part of the world saying it any different way. Fun- fungi. Fungi, fungi, it's all, it's all fair okay. game.
0: no rules, no <laughs> rules about it. No rules when it comes to fungi, fungi, fungi. Okay. Um, Jason, yeah, give us your little introduction.
2: Well, I got into biology through birds, actually. My parents and my grandparents both had a lot of bird feeders in their backyard, and I I just got really fascinated with watching their behavior and their diversity, And, and then I got sucked into trying to identify them. And that was a a really fascinating puzzle. And uh, that was kind of my entry into um, really being interested in nature. Uh, And um, I had some, my parents were really encouraging, but I I also had some really great mentors in, in bird clubs as I was growing up in Michigan. Um, And, I thought I was gonna be an ornithologist and I trained for that for years and I got field experience in the summer and I took classes. Um, but in just trying to round out my preparation for being an ornithologist, I started I started trying to learn about plants because they're, I figured they're the foundation of, of terrestrial ecosystems and birds and bird food depends on plants. And um, so I started taking classes and I got into a research lab uh at the University of Michigan that was doing plant ecology research and I really got sucked in because uh the questions were so fascinating and what I what I started to learn was that the way the the sort of dominant ideas about how plants interacted with each other were not taking into account uh mycorrhizal fungi and um all these other interesting things going on below ground and I kind of uh, it kind of hit me that I could probably spend a career, you know, working on that, and um, and uh, so it sort of took me away from birds, and I now in my research I do have some elements of birds and bird conservation, uh, which is fun to have that come full circle. But most of my career has been spent studying uh, plants and mycorrhizal fungi and how they interact, and um, and especially how mycorrhizal fungi may have unique effects on uh, plant ecology.
0: That's awesome. So basically what you're saying is you got to this place because you thought fungi was cooler than birds. And Justine, you got here because you didn't want to do chores as a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much sums, yeah, up. sums it up. <laughs> um, well, before, before we get into um, my bigger questions, can we define some terms um, for folks that don't really, you know, just are kind of giving an introduction into this topic. What is fungi? What is a mycorrhizal network? Yeah. um, That's the (laughs) definition (laughs) of fungus.
1: (laughs) Um, Gee whiz, it's been a long time since I've been given a definition of a
0: fungus. I know it's hard. It's like, how would you describe the color blue?
1: Yeah, right. Um, Well, so they're heterotrophic organisms. Um, They're actually more closely related to animals than plants, uh, so they don't photosynthesize. Um, Typically, many of the fungi that people will be engaged with or recognize right away are mushrooms. And so that's that's one kind of fruiting body um, and then depending on the species they'll form other fooding bodies too. Um, the other kind of important branch of fungi though are yeasts and so fungi can be multicellular, they can be unicellular like yeast and so and yeasts are really important in fermentation and so many of the foods that we eat today, uh, soy sauce, bread, wine, beer. Um, <laughs> All these things are made by the activity of fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi, was that the next word? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Mycorrhizal fungi. Okay. So, this is a type of fungi that form a symbiosis with the roots of plants. And they're typically considered a mutualism. And so, these fungi, unlike many other fungi, have given up the ability to acquire carbon from breaking down. Uh, dead stuff so many of the fungi they were talking about before they're all saprotrophic so they're able to uh, break down organic matter Um, they can also be parasites and that's how they get their carbon and mycorrhizal fungi are different in that they've mostly lost that toolkit um, that genetic toolkit and so now they rely on living plants to acquire their carbon Um, that's probably the the biggest difference Do you have anything else to add, Jason? Did I miss? I had to go back, in my head to a (laughs) a biology textbook there.
2: Well, that was good. I would just add that uh, part of what uh, Serena asked about was um, mycorrhizal networks and what's the definition of that. And um, it's really important to point out right away that uh, that word network gets used in multiple ways in this context. Some people use it to just refer to the A branching network of mycelium that grows in the soil or in the other substrates that fungi are living in, and that's that's an appropriate use of that word. Uh, But um, mycorrhizal networks, specifically uh, what we've been studying, are common mycorrhizal networks. And uh, our recent work that we're mostly going to talk about today was really looking at the phenomenon where mycorrhizal fungi, the mycelium, can connect multiple trees below ground through their the fungal this fungal network and so a common mycorrhizal network is a a shared fungal network between two plants it's common to the two plants and that's a, a more specific definition that's actually what a lot of the um, common claims in the popular media are about and that's what we really Uh, we're addressing in our recent paper
0: yeah and and like just trying to get um sort of a visual sense of what that looks like um i think you know please correct me if i'm wrong i'm not a mycologist but um you know trees have fairly fairly shallow roots but they're very wide so they kind of like take up a lot of space laterally and you know justine you mentioned like mushrooms are the fruiting body of some fungi and they've got all these tendrils that go a lot deeper so i mean can you guys kind of explain like what does a mycorrhizal network what does like a common fungi's fruiting body look like in comparison to like its other um tendrils underground
2: go ahead justine oh
0: i
1: was pointing at jason (laughs) um okay so imagine a root system as you are and that root system there are some really big roots like large diameter roots and those will be like the roots that are for anchoring the tree or the plant and then as you move down into the root system you encounter smaller and smaller roots and they branch more um, finely and then you get to like the final the little root tips and these are the smallest ones the smallest diameter and these are the ones that are taking up nutrients in water and on trees um, and other plants too it's it's those fine roots that are colonized by these mycorrhizal fungi so there's two kind of main groups of mycorrhizal fungi one of them ectomycorrhizas they their hyphae grow around those root tips they don't like grow into any cells, but they just go around it. I heard someone describe it one time as like little fungal hyphal slippers on roots, if that sort of gives you an, <laughs> a, an image. Um, and then there's another major type called arbuscular mycorrhizae. And these also colonize the fine roots, but they grow uh, more in between cells and inside cells without penetrating the cell. So there's these little fine Hyphae that are growing off that root tip and then out exploring in the soil. And then for ectomycorrhizas, they will produce what we see as mushrooms. And so you can imagine you'll see the mushroom on the surface of the soil or just kind of right at their surface, or sometimes you got to dig around for them. And that is just a little bit of the mycelium. The major amount of mycelium is all underground. And that is what's making these connections with roots. And so it's like, you know, this kind of fine web of hyphae in the soil. The hyphae, you know, are are quite small. Sometimes they're visible. They're easy to see. Sometimes they're yellow. They're white. They're different colors. Um, But most of the time when you look at hyphae in the soil, you don't know if it's from, if it belongs to a saprotrophic fungus like a decomposer versus a mycorrhizal fungus. You just you just see this web of hyphae in the soil. So there'll be this little fruiting body that we mostly recognize right away. But then you have to keep in mind that there's all this mycelium network below ground that in some cases is probably connecting trees or other plants together. Does that yeah. help with the image? Yeah. I mean, so okay. it's, it
0: sounds kind of like an unfathomable amount of hyphae and interconnectedness where it's like really hard to... Parse out who's who and what's what because everything's kind of like threaded and tangled together. Yes, and different species of fungi
1: um, they will form different size patches. So some of them are really small, some of them might be bigger, and um, it's it's important to sort of keep that in mind. Like often there's this idea that it's like an internet down there. Mm-hmm which is this idea that there's this one major fungus that's connecting all trees below ground, but it's probably something patchier and something that's like, there's some small patches, there's some intermediate, um, there maybe there are some bigger ones. The mycelium network is changing. It grows through time. Um, Part of it dies. It's gonna be grazed. It's a very dynamic thing. It's It's not static in terms of like comparing it to something like the internet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that sort of concept of like the internet is maybe like an oversimplification of what yeah. is actually going on. I think um, so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, Justine, you mentioned your kind of first dive into this world of mycelium and mycorrhizal fungus, um, was a paper, um, you know, co-authored, uh, written by Dr. Suzanne Samard, who's a scientist at the University of British Columbia, and her research um, on mycorrhizal networks and sort of resource altruism among trees is where the term and concept of the wood wide web comes from. Um, can you both kind of explain like in your own terms a what what her theory is and also where you both kind of have split off from that theory because it sounds like justine at first you were like wow this is really cool and that kind of got you into it and then as you are doing your own research and findings like you are kind of coming to different conclusions than dr samar did
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, okay. Well let's start with, um, trying to capture, um, that theory. Jason, do you, do you want to give that a shot?
2: Sure. Um, first of all, I would say that the ideas here are not just those of one person. Um, it's not Suzanne Simard's theory that we've been addressing with, with our recent reviews. Um, It's really a body of work that, in the scientific literature, consists of numerous experiments that have been done by uh, a variety of different research laboratories around the world, many of them by Dr. Smarn's lab and members of her lab, but many of them by others as well. Um, And it's important to keep that in mind. And what we were doing was looking at what evidence comes out of um, those experiments and comparing them to narratives in the popular media, um, in podcasts, in uh, you know YouTube videos, in TED Talks, in magazine and newspaper articles. And uh, that is where there are really prominent claims that have been made, um, some of them by Dr. Samard, but also often by others including writers and journalists who are drawing their own conclusions from other sources. And so, you know, we were comparing what is in the evidence to what is found there in in these popular claims. And in a nutshell, those popular claims around the Wood Wide Web tend to put forth the idea that trees help each other through common mycorrhizal networks in various ways, and that these networks are very, very common, persistent, and beneficial to trees. Beneficial in terms of their promoting the growth of trees that are connected to each other through the network. Not just trees having mycorrhizal fungi. We know that that's beneficial in many cases, and there's plenty of evidence for that. But the idea that multiple trees being connected through mycorrhizal fungi, through these common connections, is beneficial to the trees that are connected to each other. In terms of their growth, their survival, being able to warn each other uh, after they've been damaged by an enemy like an insect. um, That's what the the theory encompasses, um, that there are resources being transferred, that there's transfers of resources Result in benefits to the receiving trees for growth, for survival, for resistance to pests, etc.
0: Got it. Um, and you know, I think that that was the thing that has struck me the most too is if you do a quick Google search of mycorrhizal fungi or mycorrhizal networks, every article you read, every video you watch, takes this theory completely as fact. And as truth. Like it's just sort of like an assumption that we're all like cool. Trees talk to each other. You know what I mean? And and like everyone's like, yeah, that sounds awesome, you know? So I I thought that was always kind of interesting. Like, obviously it'd be really cool if that is the case or does come out to be true, but like the confidence at which a lot of these statements are made, like you said, in podcasts journalists et cetera, is, is kind of unique to this thing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's usually like, mm, I don't know when it comes to scientific theories, there's, there's a, a few grains of salt, at least like, uh, you know, a few little um, tidbits of like, this is still a working theory. Um, you know, yes, this would be cool if it's true, but it, it might not be. So I don't know. But when it comes to this topic, I just feel like everyone is just like, yes, this is, this is true. How do you guys, I mean, is that frustrating for you guys? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to say one thing. So it's it's really easy to kind of wag your fingers at the public and be like, oh, how did they, how were they sucked in so easily? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but the thing is, though, is the other part of our paper is that we did, we wanted to look at, so how we thought the public was viewing the story and interacting with this story but also look at how scientists interact with this story as well. And to do that, we did an analysis of citations. So what we did is we picked out what we thought were kind of the very influential studies in our field about common mycorrhizal networks. And then we tracked all the papers that cited those influential studies. And what we found is that over time, more and more inaccurate statements were being made about those original influential studies. So, on one hand, you can see what's going on in the public as you described, sort of this, you know, very credulous audiences just eating up the story, but it also seems to be reflected in the scientific literature as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of scientists, um, you know, mischaracterizing some of the results from those influential studies, or you know, missing some of the caveats and not carrying those forward when we talk about those studies today. So it it was sort of in parallel worlds, not that the scientists aren't public, you know, we're we're part of the public as well, but you can see it in both worlds. So I mean on one hand, you can kind of argue, well, even if us scientists are getting kind of wrapped up in the story, what like of course the public was too. It's it's a very persuasive story. And, Mm -hmm. and I think like, to me, kind of the really interesting question is like, why, why, why do we so badly want this to be true? Mm -hmm. Why, why didn't we ask more questions? Like, why was it so easy to believe? And, and to me, and I, and honestly, I don't have all the answers to that. um, But that's what I think is really fascinating. Um, But you're right. It's also super frustrating because now, we have this story out there that is proving to be very, very difficult to rein in. And, um, and, and I, and Jason can, he can talk about sort of his feelings on it, but for me, it definitely, it just makes me really concerned because I'm, I am concerned that it erodes the credibility of science when we have these stories out here. And then now the public is slowly finding out, Oh, okay. So That's not actually the whole story. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's examples. Some of these claims have never even been tested in a forest. And so, and when people start processing that, it's like, so why did the scientists say this? Why? It's just, it creates a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in a time when, you know, I hate to say it, that some of the public is sort of disconnecting from science or is becoming more mistrustful this is sort of the last thing that we want to happen Mm -hmm. and now we're sitting in it. Mm -hmm. Jason,
0: any, any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I would just add that this is also what got us into this project in the first place uh, on different iterations of it for, for different members of the team, but essentially uh, hearing these claims on the, on the media. And as you said, uh, without, really a grain of salt in most cases, and having that feeling like it was contrasting with our own understanding of the literature, um, and we all kind of felt like, I wonder if we're missing something. Is there Are there recent papers that have been published that, that we weren't aware of, that, uh, that really advanced some of these ideas and support these ideas, or are these claims getting way, uh, you know, really disconnected from evidence? And that's what we ended up you know, deciding was the reason to dive into this literature was Mm -hmm. to find out, okay, what has really been done? What does the evidence really say? And yeah, uh, coming out of it, most of these major claims are not, don't have much support. And even in some cases, the data really point in a different direction for different ideas. And so um, we are, uh, yeah, it is a bit frustrating now. And now that we have this ammunition of having, um, really looked at the literature carefully, looked at the results, and knowing what they say, um, it is frustrating now to um, to recognize that the world isn't going to immediately uh, uh, turn a one eighty and and start treating this topic differently. Yeah, it's really proving to be a, a very gradual process. But on the other hand, it's it is heartening to see the progress that's being made. Um, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of open-mindedness among journalists and among the public and among scientists. And uh, we've seen a lot of uh, really good changes and conversations happening.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you go go ahead.
1: I was just thinking like, it's kind of this funny situation in that I wish I would have caught it a lot earlier, but the only reason I started paying attention is because the claims got so crazy and so incredible and extraordinary and, And I don't think I really would have paid much attention had they not got as extraordinary as they did. So it almost took like it had to get that bad before we really noticed. I don't know.
0: Maybe other people were kind of keyed into this earlier than we were, (laughs) but so, yeah. Had you guys worked together before kind of coming to this realization? Like you're in Alberta, Mississippi very different mm-hmm. places you know <laughs> yeah. how did you guys kind of collaborate on this like idea is there a network of you guys like emailing each other like hey this is weird
1: but <laughs> <laughs> well, actually so i did a postdoc with jason so so melanie melanie jones um the third of us she was my phd advisor And so she and I keep in pretty regular contact. Um, Melanie is about to retire. And so she would always be the one that I go to for like more of a long view of the field. Um, She's got a, yeah, she's been working in this field for a long time. And then Jason, I postdoc with Jason out of my PhD. And so same thing, we keep in touch and like, yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, for me, I haven't really lost contact with most people I've worked with, so when I think it was, well, Jason can tell his story, sort of what really was the final straw. Um, For me, I can't, if I reached out to Jason, but it was sort of just one of those moments, like, are you hearing what's going on? Or like, did you read that article? Is that true? Like, what is happening? Like, just kind of one of those moments. And Melanie and I had already been talking about it because Melanie, she was sort of coming at it from a different view in that, she was feeling like some of her papers were not being cited correctly anymore and she was noticing it. And whereas me, I was sort of hearing stuff in the media that, like Jason, I was like, is this stuff true? Like, oh my God, this is my field and I don't even know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll let Jason say how he got into it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was all kind of happening at the same time and not just for the three of us, but we realized since then, many other scientists in our field have, you know, we're having the same experience at the same time. And we, um, but yeah, for me, um, at one point I was contacted uh, to comment on an article. I think it was in the New York times about this, this work and these phenomena. And, you know, I was asked to, to ask, uh, to to comment on whether I agreed with all of the conclusions and uh, some of the claims being made and I, I had to realize that I wasn't super current on the most recent years of of scientific uh, results. And and that made me not 100% comfortable commenting confidently. And I realized that I needed to be, because I needed to get there, uh, because this was really coming down the pipe more than ever. And I, it kept popping up everywhere, on the radio, in newspapers, magazines, And finally, even in my favorite television show at the time, Ted Lasso, uh, there was an episode towards the end of the first season, I believe, where uh, there was a a quote uh, read by one of the characters that related to this. And I thought, okay, I I have to I have to work on this. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I started chipping away at it on my side, working a little bit with some of my lab um, because uh, I have a student working a couple of students who are interested in this topic and. Um, we read a paper, one of these papers together as a, as a lab group and really dissected it and found that we, we were really shocked by the lack of evidence that we found when we really looked closely at one of these papers. I started dis- deciding that this was going to be a sabbatical project was to um, update a review on what we can really conclude from experimental results. I had, to some degree, reviewed this in 2015 and but was um, feeling like I wasn't current. So I started digging into the details of these experiments that have been published. What can we really say from them? What do they really tell us? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was Justine who reached out to mention and talk about how, um, you know, she and M- Melanie had started looking at the citation bias, uh, the potential for incorrect citations in this scientific literature. And we realized in talking about it, that we were taking sort of thinking about it from two different perspectives, both of us approaching it from a different um, angle, but concerned with the same problem and that it would be potentially powerful to put the two together. And so we decided to jointly work on both of these things uh, as a team.
0: Yeah. Um, Can you guys get into the actual specific limitations in those published experiments? Like, I understand you know, the sort of like public perception and the um, maybe misrepresentation of citations and um, mischaracterization of some of these experiments. But like with the experiments themselves, do you guys find like clear limitations? Are they kind of a little more ambiguous? Is it more a problem with the sort of public perception or are there problems within sort of like this theory and experiment itself?
1: Um, I would say, so first of all, the experiments, when they were done, most of them, I mean, they were the best that we could do for the time. And in any field, our approach to experiments and addressing questions, it changes. And so what we would have done 25 years ago in an experiment is, def- is most of the time not the same kind of experiment we would set up today because, yeah, our knowledge changes, we mm-hmm. have different techniques and all that kind of stuff. So in no way do I want to um, degrade the past experiments because, like I said, you know they they are for the most part that's the best that we can do. And and I also say that because all three of us have done these kinds of experiments. And so, you know, it's it it's this was never meant to be like on attack on people who have done these experiments because it also it, it includes us as well. Yeah. And so I think for the experiments, like when we look at evaluating the function of mycorrhizal networks, there's two things that we're usually interested in. We're interested in if these common mycorrhizal networks are mediating resource transfer between say a tree and a seedling or two seedlings or whatever else. And then there's another set of experiments that look at what is the effect of plugging into a network. So if you grow a seedling and if had access or not to a common mycorrhizal network doesn't matter. And the way that we set up these experiments are there's some similarities, there's some differences, um, but usually to look at resource transfer, it's been done in a couple different ways. In one way is that we look at so remember I talked about there's two those major mycorrhizal types, so ectomycorrhizes, arbuscular mycorrhizes. Those two types cannot fuse hyphae; they they can't form common mycorrhizal networks, and so researchers have leveraged that feature to create experiments where they'll have say two ectomycorrhizal plants and one arbuscular mycorrhizal plant as a control. And then they'll label one of the ectomycorrhizal plants with um, labeled carbon, carbon dioxide, plant will photosynthesize, take it up. And then they're looking, they'll track it in the nearby plants to see if any of that carbon ends up in the nearby plants. And what you're assuming is that if you do see any carbon showing up in the arbuscular mycorrhizal plant, the only way it could have got there is through um, the soil. So you have an ectomycorrhizal plant. Carbon goes down the stem, through the roots, out the mycorrhizal fungi that are surrounding those roots into the soil. It then is picked up by another root. So this is not a common mycorrhizal network pathway. It's what we call the soil pathway. And then if you see carbon in the other ectomycorrhizal plant, then you're assuming it's moving through this common mycorrhizal network. And you know, it's it's a nifty approach. It, it is very novel, but you know, like all experiments, there are some limitations to it in that ectomycorrhizal fungi, they put out a lot of hyphae in the soil. So even if they're not connected to another seedling, if you if you drop a resource into that soil, the ectomycorrhizal fungi are gonna be able to take it up faster and more of it compared to an arbuscular mycorrhizal Mm. fungi Mm. they're just they, they build very different structures and so it's a good control but it's not a perfect control um so but these controls are important so there are experiments where we didn't see that control so we don't even know well how much carbon was going through the soil pathway there's no control for it so there's some limitations in that way so there in those kinds of experiments we just don't know how much carbon was moving through the mycorrhizal network? How much was moving it through the soil? Are we sure that it was not, you know, it could have all been moving through the soil. So there's those kinds of experiments. Um, So those are some limitations. Jason, do you want to add to that group? Am I missing any?
2: Well, uh, another one that we discussed that is found in almost all of these experiments is that When these experiments are done, um, well, there's sort of two different genres of experiments. One of them is designed to test whether there's resource transfer from plant to plant through these fungal networks. Um, And another set of experiments is really more designed to test whether these fungal network connections are beneficial for the growth or survival of Mm. uh, tree seedlings. And in those experiments, typically there's some kind of manipulation done to, in one treatment, create a, a situation where the network is cut off and, and another where it's not. And so you can compare those. You can say, OK, well, survival is higher in a treatment where the, the seedlings are connected to mycorrhizal, um, other trees through mycorrhizal networks. And then another treatment where they're cut off and they're not connected to that network, maybe their survival is lower. Mm -hmm. And that would be a kind of evidence for the benefits of mycorrhizal networks. But um, what we uh, pointed out um, and is a limitation of most of these studies is that when you manipulate those networks in those treatments, it's very, very difficult to do that without um, changing other things, without changing, uh, for example, uh, the composition of the... Other microbes that are in the soil, the the different fungi that are there, the mycorrhizal com- community, the community of pathogenic fungi, the community of decomposer fungi, the communities of nematodes and uh, other organisms, and so you have confounding factors. Then you, in one treatment, yes, these these seedlings may have access to mycorrhizal network connections to other trees, but they also may be growing with different mycorrhizal fungi that have different traits. Uh, that have nothing to do with connecting them to another tree. Uh, and it turns out there are only, I think it's three studies that have been done where they actually tested that. They actually looked at a small part of the fungal community to see whether it was different in those different treatments. And it was. In two out of the three cases, it was different. And so we can't ascribe then necessarily um, if a, if seedlings were growing better in this one treatment uh, you know, to the presence of mycorrhizal network connections. It could also be because they're encountering and growing with different mycorrhizal fungi. Or, for example, different um, a community of pathogenic fungi could be uh, having access to growing into that space, because the treatments that allow the mycorrhizal networks to grow in also may allow other fungi to grow in, like pathogenic fungi. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and in most of these experiments, they didn't quantify those fungal communities to see whether that confounding effect uh, was present. Um, and so that's an alternative explanation for the results that you just can't rule out. And, uh, and in fact, it's, it's been shown to be present in several experiments. So that's just another example, but that was one that was, that's found in almost all these experiments, including some that we have done. So uh, I have a paper that I published in 2010 with Michael Booth, uh, where we claimed that there was beneficial effects of for seedlings of being connected through mycorrhizal networks to adult trees for their survival during uh, summer summer droughts, and in retrospect, um, I, I've realized we shouldn't have been so confident about those conclusions because we didn't demonstrate in those studies in that paper that there, the fungal communities were the same between the treatments. So there mm-hmm. could be that confounding factor. Um, of fungal community composition that that may be an alternative explanation for those results.
1: And that that feeling of like, oh, it could have been something else that happened to each one of us during the review process, like when we were putting together the paper and everything like. So that was Jason's moment. Melanie had her own moment. I had my own moment of just looking back at these experiments that we've done and being so sure, oh, it was probably this and then when you have some space and then you know more of it with a critical eye it was realizing it could have been this other thing that we didn't measure or so yeah it's a it, it's a humbling experience and for me kind of a lesson to really really be looking for those alternative explanations when i'm setting up experiments and thinking about them and You know, just talking to other people in terms of like, hey, this is how I'm going to set up my experiment. This -hmm. is what I'm thinking of testing. And then having other eyes on it being like, well, actually, maybe you're testing this, not this. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah, it it was a kind of a humbling lesson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, everything that you guys have both said just kind of sheds light on how complex all this is. Like, it's not... Just that the trees are talking to each other or are, <laughs> no. you know, like, the, but there's like an intelligence that is assumed in sort of the theory of the wood wide web. Like, do you guys feel like these forest systems are as complex and collaborative as this theory makes it out to be? Or like, on the spectrum of like, yes, they're complex, collaborative, and potentially altruistic and have tree intelligence or on the spectrum of they're merely just a collection of individual trees. Like <laughs> where do you guys yeah. fall in like, what, like what do you actually think is happening?
1: Yeah. Um, I can go first. Um, I think that forests are complex systems. Um, I think that there are many interactions going on. So there's competition, there's cooperation, um, facilitation neutral no interactions like and I think it changes over time and yeah and that gives rise to a lot of complexity Um, and definitely you know when you're walking through a forest I would say in many places when you're seeing nature around you it does you know it's it makes you curious like how the world works like I said that's as a kid that's that's why um, I was so interested in the world around me. It's just like, how is this working?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for me, I have never had to, I guess, um, how do I say it? Like, buy into this idea that trees are talking and, you know, they're like humans and have human behaviors to think that the forest is a very interesting and complex place.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And for me, I, yeah, I think that there is some limitations and and I think we should be cautious about mapping on human behaviors to non-humans, um, things like forests, because I think, I mean, for the basic reason is that they might be experiencing their lives and interactions in a way that maybe doesn't really parallel anything with what we know. And then I think as humans, we want to see nature behave in a certain way, because then it validates maybe how we want to exist or, or how we want nature to be so that we can say, well, nature is doing it this way, therefore, and we should be natural. And so we should do what nature is doing. Mm -hmm. But of course it's a circular thing when we're just mapping on what we want to see in society onto a forest instead of maybe just like shortcutting that whole process and just being like, how do we want to live in a society? What kind of behaviors do we want to see instead of reaching out to nature to find our compass mm-hmm. yeah Jason what do you think
2: well uh, something you said earlier I I really agree with and that is that I don't think we need all of these claims of the wood wide web to be true for it to be true that forests are complex fascinating amazing places um, I think the narrative that's out there right now is is misplaced because it emphasizes uh, claims and phenomena that are not very well supported by the science. But there's actually plenty of fascinating stories about how forests work in a complex and amazing way that are supported by good science and clear conclusions. Um, yeah. So, for example, just the nutrient exchange between trees and mycorrhizal fungi is amazing. Uh, that you know these fungi spread out into the soil and help trees obtain uh, nutrients and water. They help resist attack by pathogens. These are interactions that are symbiotic uh, and really incredible. And these fungi themselves then are making many of the beautiful edible mushrooms that we pick in forests, including truffles, uh, which are you know, evolved in this incredible way to attract mammals. Who dig them up and and disperse them? That's how truffles get their spores out into the world is by smelling good to mammals, including uh, humans. And um, there's this complex web of interactions uh, among trees, mycorrhizal fungi, uh, mushrooms, uh, truffles, and their mammal dispersers. That uh, you know gives us plenty of material to talk about how incredible forests are, mm-hmm. and we don't need the narrative that trees are uh, talking to each other and helping each other uh, by warning each other of insect damage, for example, which, you know, just has no basis in evidence. Uh, And so there's plenty we can say that that is based on evidence. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, both both of you guys, I, I think you both explained that sort of tension in a really, really thought-out way. Um, Almost like you guys study this stuff. Weird. Um, But, uh, you know, I I, I understand what you're saying, Justine, when it comes to, like, I don't need to believe that there is this sort of, like, romanticized, like, (laughs) network going on in order to appreciate the forest and its systems and, like, the world around us. But a lot of people do. Like, a lot of people anthropomorphizing is like that only tether to their interest in something, you know what i mean? And so like moving forward with communicating with the public, how do how do we capture the imagination but also do good science and teach good science, you know, like kids that are, are, might be really excited about this because it it's something that they connect can connect to in their, you know, kind of young minds is like, "Oh, this is something that trees do that i do." so that makes sense to me. So how how do we like, how do we yeah, get people excited balance? about Yeah. What's the yeah, balance and yeah. how do we get people excited yeah. in the right yeah. way? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to, I can't sit here and say that I'm totally like, um, against anthropomorphism because I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but I think that it just has become a little too pronounced right now, maybe. Uh, Because you're right, like, say, especially for kids, often that reference is to what their life or what their experience is. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, they just haven't even reached an age yet to kind of think outside of their own lives and experience. And so when you're engaging them with nature, you're often doing it in a way that really connects to their experience, which means typically anthropomorphizing and so I don't, I don't think it's like totally bad. I think that just in this case, this particular story has just gone way too far. And unfortunately, yeah, it's really ratcheted up the anthropomorphism because now when we're trying to sort of rein it in and take a couple steps back from these claims, the bar now is set so high in terms of like, well people thought that trees talked to each other through these fungi. And so, yeah, I mean, part of me is like, oh, you know, I mean, and I've heard this, like people are disappointed Mm. when they hear, oh, it's not true. Like, I really loved that story. I really loved hearing that about forests. And, and again, I would kind of use it as an opportunity of exploring that. Like, so why, what, what really resonated with you, In hearing that the trees talk to each other through fungi, like, why? Why do we want to believe this? And of course, this works a little bit better on adults than probably kids um, who maybe don't want to (laughs) self-reflect. A lot of (laughs) soul-searching for a five-year-old, yeah. I was going to say, it might be a little bit heavy for a child. (laughs) Um, But it is, yeah. And so, again, I I don't think we have to strip our language of metaphors or anthropomorphism to be talking about nature. But it's just been done in such a way lately that it's just cranked it up to like a Disney level. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think it's made all our lives difficult. It's made people who are involved in science communication difficult because again, this this bar is way up here now in terms of like the story out there. It's made it difficult as scientists because now we're trying to like walk back some of these claims. And in part, you know, like us, it's also admitting that, yeah okay maybe we went a little bit too far and those experiments didn't show what we thought and so it's it's awkward and humbling to do but we have to do it um, and for the public yeah it's like now they're left probably in the state of sort of confusion mm-hmm. it's just like well we just heard this ted talk or we just read this book and now you're telling us it's not true like, it's it's just a really messy space right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a bit of a naive optimist and just thinking that, no, I think we can still get some traction and I think we can still move forward. I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from what happened with kind of the rise and fall. I don't know if we're at the fall yet of the Wood Wide Web, but just <laughs> this, you know, <laughs> this, this arc. Um, but yeah, our job is cut out for us. I don't... <laughs> I don't have simple answers to that question. Maybe Jason has some thoughts.
2: Well, just that scientists are are not typically trained in science communication. And, you know, what we really need, I think, going forward is great collaborations with really talented uh, communicators of science. Some scientists are really good at it, um, for better or worse. And, uh, but, you know, what we need is for great uh teams of scientists and journalists and those who are good at translating science for the public uh, to create a new generation of materials that are intriguing to people that's and that suck people in mm-hmm. maybe some of that you know there's room for some anthropomorphization uh, and those and other metaphors metaphors are important for communication and and we know that but it needs to be grounded in uh, strong scientific results at the, at its base. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it's it's just doing more harm than good.
0: Yeah, yeah. In order for science to work, theories that are proven, disproved. It's like it's like a constantly moving, constantly evolving um, set of thoughts and theories and rules. And you know, we kind of have to have that flexibility in order for science to function it seems like mm-hmm. we we can't just get lost in the sauce so to speak like and just and just latch onto one theory and just be like that's done we're done yeah. we have nothing left to explore on this yeah. topic.
1: I think yeah it's important to be emphasizing here is what we know now. 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 Mm-hmm. And you know our knowledge is provisional in science. It's 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 not static. It's changing and So it's allowing for things to be updated. Um, That's, uh, yeah, I think it's really important for that.
2: I agree. I think we need to find a way to communicate science results in an exciting way, but also to preserve some amount of that uncertainty and Mm -hmm. that grain of salt that you mentioned earlier. There's got to be a balance there so that the public, because we need people to understand that about science, not just to be excited about forests, but also to to understand how science works and that it's not super linear all the time and that there's it's not just um, accumulation of facts, but it's it does involve uh, ideas being re-examined and changing right. as evidence piles up. And ideally we're you know the overall trajectory is that we're heading in a direction where we understand more and more. But getting there is not always straightforward and linear and um, we have to prepare the public that uh, that there are going to be some ups and downs and some backs and back and forth before we, you know, reach consensus on certain ideas.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even that consensus, you know, like even Darwin's theory of evolution, even years and years later is still a theory. It's still a working theory that can evolve potentially with new information. But like we have consensus in the community that's like, this is, Pretty likely. Like we all can kind of agree there's a lot of evidence to back this up. So we'll kind of we'll go with that for now. And if there's other things that come up. But um, absolutely, Jason. So um, I'm, I kind of wonder what you guys think. Like, where do we go from here? Like, yeah, do we do we start I, from scratch? <laughs> yeah, I don't think we need to start from scratch.
1: Um, but I think in terms of the science communication piece, Uh, Melanie, who was not able to join us today, she had a couple suggestions that I I thought were really good. And for when, um, say, journalists or um, podcasts, whatever the situation is, when they're talking to scientists, so, you know, we're always really excited to share our new research. And sometimes it's easy for us to sort of get caught up in it. And what she had suggested was to ask scientists a couple questions and those being um number one are there other studies that show similar results to yours and and if the answer is no this is the first study well okay that's great that's exciting but it's also a little bit of a flag of just like okay nobody else has replicated this yet so provisional but the other question that she thought journalists uh, should be asking us is if there were alternative explanations to our results and those two questions and it's not at all that scientists we're not intentionally trying to mislead anyone <laughs> like I don't want to cast it yeah. in that way but yeah. those two questions they immediately ground us and tether us to reality of just like oh alternative explanations like okay so maybe there might be it. It's a really strong tether and anchor to, um, so that we don't get so carried away. And, And I don't know, like a really good example of that, and Jason had mentioned that, is that this one claim that trees are warning each other about insect attack through common mycorrhizal networks. It's like so widespread and so popular, but it was based on a single greenhouse study and that's it. Like, Mm -hmm. it was never tested in a forest. Um, The results themselves actually don't translate that well to the forest. And it's a single study. And I just wonder, like, looking back at all the media and just, like, how so much of this Wood Wide Web story integrated that piece. But it just seems like nobody asked, like, where is this evidence? What is Mm -hmm. it built on? And it was such a crucial, crucial question that just seemed to have been skipped. And so now, you know, and this is one of the claims that is like, it's really difficult to walk this one back. And, and you know, and I, and I don't, I'm not pointing fingers or trying to place blame because there's a lot of actors involved who should share the responsibility for that. But it's just an example of like, why those questions of those those anchors to reality are really important. And so that this this kind of story what happened with the wood wide web doesn't happen again.
0: Mm. And, and just to kind of wrap up, like what are some unresolved questions or areas of ambiguity that you hope future studies will address to kind of deepen our understanding of these tree fungi relationships? Like what are you guys excited about?
2: Well, for me, I think, first of all, it's possible to do these experiments in a way that gives us more unambiguous results. In some cases, th- there are a couple of cases where they've been done. Uh, the right experiments have been done and shown that mycorrhizal networks were not beneficial. Uh, so it's you know it's it's po- it's possible to do these experiments in a way that covers your bases and allows unambiguous interpretation. But what we need is more of those across different contexts because one thing we saw in the data we looked at was that um, if you set aside some of the alternative explanations and just take the results at face value, what it suggests is that the benefits of mycorrhizal network connections between trees are really variable and context dependent and that they're variable among, uh, for example, spatially, you know, depending on the distance to the adult trees. It varies maybe depending on available moisture in the soil, maybe available light, depending on the species involved. And that context dependency, I think, is really fascinating. And I'm starting to picture the forest as a, as a mosaic where mm. in certain spaces under certain contexts, mycorrhizal networks connecting trees may be beneficial to one or more of the individuals. And in another part of the forest at a different place or time, they may be detrimental and sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, they don't matter at all. And what we really need to understand is that variability. What are the environmental factors driving that variability? And maybe how does that link to climate change? Will mycorrhizal networks take on increasing or decreasing importance in certain contexts as different elements of global change uh, continue to drive uh, you know major differences in, in how these habitats function in forests? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I, all that I find really interesting, too. And I hope with the next generation experiments, we can tackle some of those questions. And, and for me, some of it's just the real basics of just like, what do these networks look like? <laughs> like, what do they look like underground? And I mean, we can't, we you know, there's no way to like, take a x-ray camera to take a picture of the network. We can't, we don't have tools like that. So we have to be clever, we have to rely on different tools. Um, but just to get a sense of like, yeah, which trees are connected to which trees? Does it change over time? Are there many trees connected in the forest or just some? Does it change over the season? Like just those real basics about what the network looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I And does it change depending on the forest you're in? Just
0: those real basics I think would be really helpful. Yeah. Just as like a fun thought experiment, if I could like wave a wand and get answers to all those questions for you guys. Would you want to know? Or are you kind of... Is is the mystery part of your interest in all of this? Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, when you put it that way, because part of me is like, yeah, like, the not knowing is is part of the drive Mm -hmm. of, like, wanting to know. And then... (sighs) But I am really curious and I would like to know some answers. So I'm kind of in the middle. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Maybe if you could tell me if you could wave a wand and provide some preliminary data that would allow us to get a really awesome (laughs) grant proposal funding, that's what I would request. Yes. There we go. (laughs) Just reveal to us enough that NSF will give us more money to continue to study it.
0: Well, thank you guys both so much for this conversation. I had a, a really great time, and I, I learned a lot from both of you. Um, where can folks go to learn more, A, about you guys and your work, and then just, like, what's a good resource for folks to learn more about um, mycorrhizal fungi and and these interesting, unanswered questions? Yeah, um, uh, definitely our, our respective websites. So each of us
1: post all our papers up there. So if anyone's interested in what else we study besides common mycorrhizal networks um that's a good place to go for kind of general knowledge about mycorrhizal fungi that's a good question do you have any suggestions jason
2: well one thing i would mention is that we we did um melanie led the writing up among the three of us of a um, an article in undark magazine uh, Mm -hmm. which is written for more of a popular audience uh, and kind of explains uh the you know, how this all went and where we think that the narrative went wrong with the Wood Wide Web. And um, I really recommend people check that out, uh, article out in undark. Um, and on my website, I've compiled links to all of the other, you know, a lot of the other, um, I think, really, really well done coverage of, of this work from uh, journalists that, that we've talked with. And there's a lot of good material there to, to dive into. Um, so that's where I would start. Um, good information on mycorrhizal fungi. Um, I, I really, I really do like Merlin Sheldrake's recent book, uh, *Entangled Life*, which is about um, you know all different aspects of fungal biology, and it's um, it is really well grounded in the science. And, you know, there's a chapter about mycorrhizal networks and the the wood wide web that I think is uh, quite balanced in its treatment of the topic. and I think that's um, that's definitely a, a recommended book. On my and it's side. written
1: in such an engaging way.
2: Mm-hmm. So it.
0: it's a nice entry into the world of fungi for sure. Yeah. yeah not to spoil anything but he eats his book at the end
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: i've seen that video yeah.
0: well uh justine jason thank you both so much this was a great conversation genuinely honestly like this was such a fun way to spend my afternoon so great thank yeah. you guys for taking the time <laughs>
3: okay
2: thanks serena I Really enjoyed thank it. you yeah
3: thanks yeah. serena
0: next episode
3: of the Earth to Humans podcast. It's an interview with Elizabeth Colbert, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of The Sixth Extinction, which, as you can probably tell by the title, is about the extinction crisis that we are currently in. Her most recent book is called Under a White Sky. And that book is about uh, climate adaptation and geoengineering and some of the things that we have in store in the not-so-distant future as a result of climate change. It was a really fascinating conversation. Um, I had this conversation with a fellow Wildlands Collective member and filmmaker, Kristen Tiesch, who is currently producing a documentary about bats and white-nose syndrome. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert is one of the journalists who, uh, one of the first journalists to write about white-nose syndrome, which is this disease that has devastated bat populations all across North America. And uh, her writing was in part uh, an inspiration for uh, Kristen to begin producing a documentary about bats and about white-nose syndrome. Um, So Kristen and I uh, conducted this interview, uh, the two of us together, And uh, yeah, it was just a fascinating conversation and uh, I really look forward to sharing it with all of our listeners.
0: Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Hannibal Vanni, Matt Podolsky, and me, Serena Simons. Music for this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at earthtohumanspod.com for a full list of credits as well as photos and artwork for today's episode. Thanks for listening.